You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Revelation 1, verse 4 through 2, verse 7. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are our that are ours in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstands from its place, unless you repent. Yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Word of the Lord. Thank you, J.D. I appreciate the <clears throat> dramatic reading. Uh, thank you for serving us. And, uh, it's powerful. It's the book of Revelation. It's the start of the book of Revelation. And this is the start of our seven-week series. I'm Nick. I'm the pastor here in Aligning Life if we don't know each other. And now is the time in our service that I love. We get to do a Bible study together. Each week I look forward to this. You hear me say it all the time. I will never grow tired of saying it because it's true. This is the chance where we get to sit under the teaching of the Lord, under the word of the Lord, and see what he has for us. I hope you had a chance this week to join with your small group Bible study and dig into our passage. Do your pre-lab, as we like to say around here, right? I had a blast doing this with the off-campus group on Tuesday. I loved the conversations I had with many of you around this week. But it's been clear, as expected, as we enter into the book of Revelation, there are a lot of questions, right? What did we just read? What's going on? What are all these images? What, there's all these references that we maybe don't, we don't catch. It's a challenging book, isn't it? And as we enter into this seven-week series, we want to give you some handholds, some, some helpful ways to get started in understanding this book, why it's profitable for us today, why it's in our Bibles. So let me, let me offer this first, just to, to back away from the text a little bit and think about stories a little bit. Show of hands, how many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, right? A classic. Or how about my favorite, The Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, these are excellent stories, right? I love them. I'm waiting to read through The Lord of the Rings with my son. We read through Narnia together already. Uh, now, as we read these stories, we enter into a mythic world, right? We enter into a fantasy. We suspend our reality to take in the story, to let it come to life. And as we do so, the story shapes us, right? We learn more about the characters. We start to care about them. We see them in uh, their, their characteristics, their virtues. and we, we aspire to be like that. We're called up. And as we do this, if we're uh, good story readers, I would say, in the moment, we don't stop and hyperanalyze, what does it mean? What does the ring of power mean in my world today, right? Or, or what, what is Turkish delight for me in my life, right? takes us out of the story, it breaks it up, right? Now, your, your English class taught you to do that in high school, but we do that after the fact. We do the analyzing after the fact. No, we, we immerse ourselves in the story, and we let the big picture come to life, right? Even, even with the more overt symbols in these stories, right, like Aslan and Gandalf and Aragorn, right? We, they're Christ-like figures, but we don't take those Christ-like figures and map them to Jesus in our life and say, Jesus, go fight the Balrog, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. We don't do that. We let the story shape us. I invite you to do the same with Revelation. In the moment, take in the big picture. We can do some analyzing. We can do some digging in. But take in the big picture when you read this book. I picked these two stories for a specific reason. They reveal a lot about God. They shape a lot uh, about uh, even our, our, my modern understanding, maybe a lot of our understandings of God and what he's like. And that's intentional. The authors modeled them after the Christian God, after scripture. They intended to tell you about God through these characters and through these stories. They're beautiful stories. They illustrate God's story through symbols, through fantasy, and sometimes allegory. 
And the same is true with Revelation. The same is true with Revelation. God revealed, inspired, and instructed the Apostle John to pen this book to illustrate his story through symbols, the fantastical, maybe even allegory. So my encouragement to you as you read this book of the Bible is to try to spend less time decoding each symbol and trying to figure out what that means in history or my life today, when this would happen, and try to focus more on what it reveals about God, what it's telling us about God. That's the purpose. The book is not for us to decode history or the future. It's for us to see something about God. What the book ultimately reveals about God is its purpose. Now, the exception here for interpreting symbols is like what we just saw in the first chapter. Often in this book, we'll get a symbol and it'll tell us what it means, right? Seven lampstands are the seven churches. Seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, right? So, so it gives us some handholds for some symbols and it'll use language that way. Uh, when Revelation tells us a symbol, it's okay to just use that. We can translate in our brains, right? So we'll see that in our passage this morning. It'll refer to lampstands and it's meaning the church again, right? As always, as we study the Bible, and Revelation is no different, we need to understand the context it, uh, we find it in. We need to understand what it, what it would have sounded like to the original audience, how they would have received it, what it would have meant to John as God was revealing it to him. To understand the original meaning helps us understand our meaning, the meaning for us today. The meaning for us today is rooted in what God intended then as well. It's been carried forward for us today. So we'll spend our time, as we always do, understanding the historic context, understanding the textual context, understanding what's going on in this book before we try to figure out what it means for us right now. This book, it's a unique one in the Bible, and I, we're, today we're going to do a little bit more framing in and understanding before we get to our first letter. Each week we'll, we'll dive in more directly into a, uh, a different uh, part, of the, part of the book. But uh, this book, it's, it's a unique one in the Bible. It's the only one of its kind in the Bible. It's a genre called apocalypse, which is foreign to us. We don't really have a good, uh, you know, analogy today for a uh, good comparison today. I, I think the closest would be, and I referenced this in my small group, like maybe some sci-fi stuff kind of gets at this, right? Trying to tell like, what could humanity be like in the future? Or what could the end be like? What, uh, uh, what are our current, what's our current trajectory almost? Um, but we really have no clear comparison to this. It's foreign to us, but it was, really it was really common to them. There were apocalypses floating around, not all inspired, and certainly not all in the canon. This is the only one that makes it into scripture for us. So apocalypse was a, a genre, a type of literature that John's hearers, the, the early church was aware of. They were, they were reading this. It was, uh, it was common for them, right? but it's not for us. So we have to do some work to unpack it, to understand it a little bit. And that's part of what we run into when we read this book and we scratch our head and say, what's going on with this dragon with lots of heads, right? Apocalypse, broadly speaking, let me just frame in that genre. It's a literary work born out of times of hardship, persecution, or oppression. The language, it's highly symbolic. It's steeped in imagery from the Old Testament, it references the Old Testament constantly. You have to be a student of the Old Testament to start to see this clearly in Revelation. It draws on the ways God has worked in the past 
be able to do similar things now, right? Like uh, the way that God worked in Exodus, the way that he worked in Daniel, the way that he worked through the, all the prophets are echoed in Revelation for us. And we see that when we go back and we understand some of our Old Testament. Right? The way that God worked in the past in similar situations of oppression, of exile, of persecution, he's working again in the future. It's about God, the, ultimately the book is about God bringing his ultimate plan and conclusion to history. It's the end times. It's the end of all things and the remaking of all things. To a people enduring persecution, apocalypse is a lifeboat. It's an infusion of hope. It's a, it's a chance to shift your perspective from your current situation to the ultimate reality that will eventually take place. To, to a people enduring persecution, the end is that God endures, that God wins, that he is the ultimate victor. God will triumph over evil and destroy it once and for all. The present circumstances will not overtake the Lord. They will not be here forever. And that's the purpose of this book. The purpose of Revelation is to offer us hope that God wins in, God wins in the end. It's 22 chapters of revealing God is in control and God wins in the end. No matter how fallen the world seems, how brutal the oppression of believers are they're experiencing, Jesus will return and defeat evil for good. He will judge all creation and all who stand against God. He will establish a new heaven and a new earth where we will be with him again in paradise. For all those who keep the faith, that's the end, that's the end goal. That's the picture. That's the hope before us. Now, to unpack that message in the book, we need to understand the context it's written in. We need to understand how the first readers, uh, how they would have found it to their ears. So let me frame in this book a little bit for you. Let me give you a little history before we, we jump in. We can draw back on this for uh, weeks in, in the future. The Apostle John, he wrote this letter while in exile on the island of Patmos, which, hey, I did a map. Um, you guys know my visuals. <laughs> Patmos is a Greek island in the Aegean Sea. Uh, he was in exile because of his faith and his testimony uh, of Jesus. We heard that in verse 9 when uh, J.D. Uh, read that to us already. It's in the introduction to the book. He frames in where he was at and when God gave him this revelation and the instructions he was given to share it with others. Now, historic evidence suggests that, that John most likely wrote this around 95 AD. That's when Domitian is emperor of Rome. And that might mean nothing to you if you don't remember your Roman history. Uh, a lot of times in our study Bibles, that'll, they'll point that out. But this is important because if you recall, or I will share with you if you don't, in the Roman Empire at this point, persecution of Christians has been going on locally and sporadically, but it's starting to amp up. And that's, that's key for understanding this, right? John himself is in exile for his faith, right? Persecution is happening for faith in the Roman Empire. Under Domitian, we know that Christians, they were exiled, they were executed, or, or otherwise just cut off from society for refusing to worship the emperor. Right? Domitian, he wanted everyone to refer to him, the emperor, as our Lord and God, which is problematic if you're a Christian, right? Because he isn't our Lord and God. He's just another man who happens to have power. And so Christians refused. John refused, potentially, and that's why he's on exile on Patmos. By this point in history, 
there's a growing pressure on Christians to participate in Roman religious practice, emperor worship and otherwise. That's the point I want you to keep in the back of your mind as you read this book. This is why so much of the book of Revelation is about believers standing firm in their faith and not compromising on the ways of the world. The book is constantly reminding, encouraging, and warning believers to resist conforming to the ways of the world. Don't undermine your faith by compromising and saying, Caesar, or the emperor, is our Lord and God. To the hardships that believers face on account of their faith, John refers to them as tribulation throughout the book. You hear that word a lot. That's what he means. It's the hardships that they're enduring on account of their faith. Believers, they're called to endure tribulation and keep their faith. And the same is true for us today. We're not in threat of being exiled to Patmos, right? No one's telling us to, to call the president our Lord and God. Yet we can still stand firm in our faith and not compromise not compromise on things like Jesus is the only way to salvation, the only name by which we can be saved. Right? We, we, can, we can avoid compromise by not growing complacent and yielding to worldly desires and just sort of considering godly living as optional. Right? We can resist compromising by not a, a, adopting the false teaching of the day of self-actualization, right? Like, I'll just become the best version of myself through enlightenment and further study, and just more striving and trying, right? The heresy of our day. Right, our tribulation, our trials, they might not be threat of execution or exile or, uh, you know, just being cut off from commerce or, or whatever else they faced. But our, our tribulation can, can feel real at times too, can it? It can feel like being misunderstood or overlooked or excluded by our peers, right? Being questioned about our faith being dismissed. We have it easier in a lot of ways, but in some ways our, our tribulation might be a little bit more, I don't know, uh, under the radar. Might be a little bit harder for us to put our finger on. Anyway, the, the point being, all believers throughout history have to endure for their faith, keep the faith. The message is the same for us. For those of us that have been around for a while, you know I can't help myself, so you know this was coming. You know an image like this. And somebody else, if you want to help me make better images, you're always welcome to serve us all in that way. Uh, I have to, I, I just have to show us the, whole, the way the whole book works together, right? Because that is helpful for us putting, taking any passage and studying it ourselves. So let me give you a brief overview of the book. Uh, John experiencing persecution in exile on Patmos, and God intervenes, right? As we saw, Jesus shows up like a voice of a trumpet. It's a magnificent explanation or description of who Jesus is, how, what he's like, right? Jesus instructs John to write to seven churches, and John does it, as you would if Jesus showed up and told you to do something, right? And then John is given a vision. He's, he's pulled into the throne room of God, just like Isaiah was. There's very similar language to, the, to Isaiah seeing the throne room of God. And in this vision from the throne room, there's an unfolding of the end. The end times is revealed to John through a series of seven seals, seven trumpets, seven signs, and seven bowls. If you haven't caught, seven is an important number in this book, and you're going to hear it a lot over and over again. Seven. Each series of seven is punctuated by a worship scene on the throne room of God, which is at the end of each of those segments. 
after, after which all of those unfold, there's God's final victory that takes place over evil. The final battle, the final showdown. And then there's a new heavens and a new earth. And we worship the Lord as Jesus reigns forever. And that's the book of Revelation in a brief overview, a paragraph overview. Now, there's a lot of ways for interpreting the sequencing of this book, like how it all plays out, right? And uh, again, graphics, right? Uh, there's a, a sort of a literal sequencing, like maybe all seven of these just keep happening one after the other, right? Or, or some have, have pointed out that there's maybe a nesting happening, right? As, as the seventh uh, unfolds or the seventh is revealed, the next one kind of flows out of it, almost like they're encapsulated, right? Or, or others have said like, no, this is sort of a history, uh, history arc that's being showed and then rewound and shown again from a different perspective. And there's a lot of different ways to see it. And this, this comes down to how you find the timeline of Revelation and people argue and there's a lot of debates and there's about 8,000 different camps of how to interpret these things. We're not going to do that here. We're going uh, to avoid that. Uh, here's why I think it's ambiguous. I think it's not clear what exactly is happening because as Jesus said, only the Father knows the day and time. The intention here is not for us to know exactly how these things are going to unfold and what day and time it's going to unfold and when the next one's going to happen and how many days in between. Now that's for God to know. Jesus himself limited his knowledge and tells us as he walked the earth that it's not even for, he doesn't even know. Instead, what we have is John's view. John, another brother in Christ, given a view from heaven of how this all unfolds, a heavenly perspective, a spiritual reality of what's going to unfold at the end. And he writes down what he's seeing. And it offers us hope. It offers God's people hope as they face persecution. The hope is that God ultimately overcomes. The hope isn't how long this trial will last. The hope is that God actually wins, that he overcomes that trial. So John saw and recorded a spiritual reality as it unfolded. He then circulated it to the seven churches as he was instructed to. He was, he was shown what it was, what was, and he says, what is and what is to come. And so some of this may be the past, some of it may be in the future. It's unclear to us. It's all for the purpose of preparing the church and preparing us today for the hardships that lay ahead as we wait for Jesus' second coming. As Jesus returns and claims ultimate victory. Now we know from church history that after John writes this, for about the next 200 years, there's intense persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. It kind of just escalates for about 200 years here. And so the Lord, in his kindness, provided this hope to the church at a time that it desperately needed it. The book of Revelation, the hope it offers, carried the church through a desperate time of persecution for these next few hundred years. And it does the same for us today. And whatever hardships we face, it offers us hope and carries us forward. It encourages us to endure in our faith. In our short seven-week series, we're not going to unpack the entire book of Revelation. You probably figured that out already. Instead, we're going to focus on one literary unit, one that was up there earlier, the letters to the seven churches. Now, I know those of you that have been around the church have probably heard messages on the letters to the seven churches before. 
And I know this because I heard some groaning earlier this fall when, I mentioned, when we mentioned that we're doing this, right? And I'm, I, I hear you. I'm with you. Yes, this is what every church does when they go to Revelation, right? The rest of the book is great, too. I encourage you, read it, listen to it, engage with it, study it yourself. But we're going to take a small chunk here. And let me just shoot straight with you, because why not? The reason we do this is because this is the easy layup for Revelation, right? This is the easy easy to interpret, straightforward, seven letters to seven churches. They need help. We need help. We're a church that needs help. The instructions are pretty clear and straightforward, right? We don't have to get into a lot of when is this happening and who's this history? How did this play out in history, right? This is the, the straightforward, or at least somewhat most straightforward part of the book. So as we introduce the genre of apocalypse, as we introduce the, t- the book of Revelation to you, we're starting with Revelation 101 rather than taking you to the master's course of Rev 501, right? We're, we're starting with the easy to give us the handholds and the tools to start interpreting this book and understanding it. So chapter one of the book, uh, as I, you saw earlier, it's sort of the prologue, the introduction. It frames things in. It's John's instructions, how he encountered Jesus, why he was in exile one Sunday afternoon. Jesus gives him the instructions to write to the seven churches. And then the next two chapters is where we'll spend our time. It contains these letters, the seven letters. Each one is to a real church in that time, dealing with real circumstances that are challenging their faith or are bolstering their faith. It's real instructions to real people to help them in their faith. Each week, we're going to take time to unpack one of those letters and see how that could be applicable to us, what we could learn from that. We'll seek to understand what it meant to them so we can seek to understand what it means for us. The instructions for the church are for them, but they're for us, just like all scripture is, right? To its original context, but it's also to us. So let's get into our first letter. It's been a while, gave you a long introduction, and now's the time to tune back in if you're not, right? I'm going to reread the first, these, it's just seven verses, so I'm just going to reread the passage, and then we're going to unpack it in three sections, right? Three chunks, if you've been around, that's the way I refer to things. All right. Uh, if, if you're new, we'll keep, the, we'll keep the words on the screen as I teach. I teach from the ESV if you'd like to sync up with me. Uh, here, the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this, I, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in, par- in the paradise of God. So that's the first letter. Jesus starts off with a compliment sandwich, right? You guys are familiar with this, right? He gives some criticism, but he puts it between two praises. Compliment sandwich. 
uh, the church, they've been doing a lot of good things for God, right? He says, you do a lot of great works, but your love, it's faded. Yet you continue to stand against who I would stand against, the heresies I would stand against. In the first chapter of Revelation, we learn that Jesus is the one addressing the churches. So if that's not obvious, Jesus was speaking there. That's what John recorded. Those churches, they're referred to as lampstands. I think it's fascinating that lampstands is the image, right? Because think about a lampstand. There's nothing innately special about a lampstand except for it makes room for the light, right? Jesus is the true light. They are the, the lampstands that share Jesus with those around them. He's the light that illuminates all. So they're the lampstands. They share Jesus. So there's the seven churches, or the seven lampstands. And there are seven stars or seven angels of the seven churches, which can be confusing for us. But this is a way of, of Jesus addressing the church or the spirit of the church, the, the messenger of the church, right? It's a way of saying, communicate to the church, right? He says, communicate to the angel of the church. That's the pattern we'll see in all these letters. So Jesus addressed to this church and to us is to make sure our hearts are in it. It's not enough to do good things for God, right? We have to love God and love others. Consistent and persistent works in the name of God mean nothing without love. That's the point of the letter, right? Faithful work without love is faithless, right? That's the point of the letter. Let's look a little bit closer and unpack that, right? Like that's the, that's the point. Love is important. The opening of the letter, it starts out great. It sounds like a letter to you all, right? A bunch of you high-achieving U of I students. You're doing great. You're accomplishing so much. You're so smart, and you stand for the right things, and truth matters, right? It's great. It, it, I, I, feel, I feel like that'd be a great way to talk to me. Thanks, Jesus. Write that letter to me, right? Uh, it's all good things, right? Let's, let's, let's hear those words again, right? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words, of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. You've not grown weary. Right? The, this church in Ephesus, it's, it's off to a good start. It's doing a lot of great things, a lot of good things, right? And that makes sense because if you remember from, you know, the New Testament, the church in Ephesus was an important church. It was a key church. The Apostle Paul, he stayed here for more than two years with his missionary team as he was planting churches on, on, his, on the missionary journeys that we read in Acts. There's a deep affection between Paul and, and these church leaders that we can read as at the end of Acts as Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. He, he, Paul goes to Miletus just south of the city and, and calls the leaders out, and he offers this beautiful, pastoral, heartfelt uh, communication with them, encouragement to strengthen them as leaders. What he thinks will be his last communication. There's a deep love and respect that is clear in the church of Ephesus early on as it was planted, right? Or maybe you remember we, we, when we studied through the pastoral epistles last spring, right? Timothy is here, and Paul writes to him, right, to encourage him, a dear brother, a dear friend. He writes to encourage him as the leader of the church and reminds him the importance of standing against false teaching, right? He gives him handholds to how to lead the church and how to stand against false teaching. This church has clearly 
been doing a good job in that, right? It's praised here. Been standing against false teachers, standing up against heresy, right? By, by all the church health metrics they probably had to report to their network, they were doing great. Everybody was like, you're awesome. Your numbers look good. You've raised up additional church leaders. You're standing against heresy. You got good doctrine. You're well within orthodoxy. You're diligently doing the work of the Lord. Things are good, right? Safeguard your doctrine. Clearly, the church has taken their training and their instruction to heart. They're doing what they've been taught to do. They're model students in that regard, right? In this way, right, like not, not being facetious at all, we ought to strive to be like the Ephesians. We have to study the scriptures and check our teachers, right? I would love for us to be that kind of church. If you hear me or someone else up here saying something you think is false, come and talk to us. I think that's what they were doing, testing teachers, right? Come talk to us if you think we're teaching falsehood. If you hear us teaching anything other than Jesus and, and salvation through Christ alone, come talk to us. That's our message. That's the heart of a line of life. Life with, like, and for Jesus, right? They were, they were diligently working for the Lord. They were, I know your works. I know your, your strivings, your, your, your hard workers. Let's be the same, right? Let's find a place to plug in and serve in the church. If you haven't, we'd love to help you. We want everybody to be on mission to reach this campus. Let's strive to be like the Ephesians in these ways. It was praiseworthy, it was noteworthy for Jesus as he addressed them. And so the opening of the letter, it makes it clear that the Ephesians are doing a lot right. They were diligent workers for God, standing against false teaching and evil. Jesus praises them for their faithful works. Faithful in the sense of consistent and diligent at least, right? Faithful in that regard. They got a good start, right? It was about a, a generation prior that, that Paul and his fellow missionaries planted this church. Yet something happened. Something has happened in their deep affection that Paul felt that we saw and experienced early on has grown cold. Let's keep reading and see what's happened. Picking back up in, verses, in verse 4. Says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this, I, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus calls them to repentance. They've lost the love they once had. And the language here is intentionally ambiguous in my opinion and most other scholars that I read. The love is both God and for each other, right? The love they had, love for God and love for neighbor. They've forgotten their love and their striving and their hard working and their doctrine safeguarding. They've forgotten love. Forgotten to love God and love one another, right? What Jesus said was the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, right? To love God and love neighbor. They've forgotten it. It's not evident. And Jesus calls them to repentance. They've lost sight of it. And now, having lost sight of it, they're in jeopardy of losing their faith in, in its entirety, right? Of, of the church dying and fading away, the lampstand being taken away, right? The church folding, closing its doors. Repent and return to where you have fallen from are the instructions from Jesus. Rekindle your love for God and for one another. 
That's what Jesus calls them to. That's the challenge to this church. Don't just be a church that thinks it's got the corner on truth. We have the right doctrine, but be a church that's not known by its love. That's their, that's their shortcoming. Be a church known by love, not by just right doctrine. And I think it's fascinating, not surprising at all, a church that has forgotten love feels right at home, hating the works of another group, right? A little bit cryptic in this, uh, uh, in this, la in this last verse here, 6. To be fair, Jesus hates their works too, right? So they're, they're in good standing, right? He says that's, that's a good thing. They're, you should not like what they're doing. Uh, we don't know a ton concretely about the theology and the works of the Nicolaitans, but uh, it's clear that they were an early church heresy. Jesus is not happy with what they're teaching and doing, the works that they're performing, and so he says stand against that. But here, a church that has lost love, has lost sight of their love, has no problem hating, right? The doctrine watchdogs of Ephesus, right? They see heresy and in hearts empty of love, they hate the work of those people. While Jesus praises them for standing against the heretics, he specifically praises them for hating the works, right? Not the individuals, not treat them meanly, right? Don't hate the individuals, for be, don't be spiteful or mean-spirited or hostile towards them, right? As we encounter anti-gospel movements or, or unorthodox theology or, or those that, that take Jesus down a peg and question the deity of Christ, we don't have to treat them with animosity. We don't have to approve of their message or their works. We can stand against it. We can do so loving the individual without supporting the message that they have to share. Let me show you what I, what I think this could look like a little bit. Not that I'm a perfect example of this, but this has happened in my life recently, and it came to mind as I was reading. I was in Madison, Wisconsin a few weeks ago. Some of you know that. I wasn't here. Uh, I was walking with my son, Nathan, to the store on Saturday morning, and we encountered some Jehovah's Witnesses giving out their materials and talking to people. Now, Nathan, being a curious and social little boy, asked me what, what they were doing. And I explained to him that, uh, well, they believe in a false God, and they're trying to convince people to believe like they do. And he, his mind was blown. He was baffled. Why, why would they believe a false God, Dad? Why don't they believe the God that we believe? They don't believe in Jesus. And so we talked for blocks as we walked to the store, right, about this. We talked that not everybody d believes in the same God we do, and that's our job is to share Jesus with other people. That's what Daddy does for his job. That's what I, get, I hope you get to do with your friends. And so, as we're coming back from the store with our groceries in our hands, right, and I'm carrying a jug of water that's destroying my hand, uh, Nathan shouts and points, Dad, look, it's the people that believe a false god, right? <laughs> and I'm like, well, immediately I was like, well, I'm glad you were listening, right? That was a, I'm glad we had a profitable conversation. Uh, I said, hey, Nathan, it's not very kind for us to talk about people that way, right? That's true, but I think we could we could pray for them, and maybe the next time we see them, we could maybe try to talk to them about Jesus. That might be a better loving way to interact with them rather than just yelling at them and pointing at them, right? Uh, this is what I think it can mean to hate the works of the Nicolaitans, right, is to stand against, disagree with, but do so in a loving way with those. So we prayed. We prayed for the Jehovah's Witnesses, and we prayed that no one would believe in their false god as they stood there on the corner and shared 
This is what I'm trying to teach my son. This is what I think it could look like. How we treat those who believe wrongly, who believe a false gospel, is important. The individuals are loved by God, and we can love them, even if we disapprove of their message, even when we know their message is false. And we can share Jesus because they need Jesus too. Well, back to Ephesus, right? Not Nick and Nathan and Madison. Uh, right? These well-meaning, hard-working believers had forgotten about love. And Jesus is concerned. He's concerned because when we lose love, we're at risk of losing our faith. Let us heed the same caution he offered them. Let us hear the call to repentance just as I believe they did. Let us examine our own hearts and our own lives and see where we have fallen into patterns and rhythms of doing for God instead of doing out of love for God. That make sense? Doing for God. Let me produce for you, God, right? Let me do all these great works rather than, Lord, I love you. Let me serve you. The difference. Jesus calls them back to their love. When we find ourselves aligning life, when we find ourselves going through the motions, right, showing up to Bible study, but not really engaging with the text, not really encountering Jesus in our community or in the, in the words of the text, when we, when we find ourselves in that place, let's repent and return to our first love. Let's ask God to transform us, to meet with us, and rekindle our love for him. When we find ourselves showing up to service and mouthing the words to a worship set, but not really thinking about the words or believing them, just going through what we're supposed to do, stand and sit at the right times. Let us repent and let us return to our first love, our love for the Lord. When we find ourselves leading others in the church, but not really caring about them, right? Like, what's their name? What is their major? I don't really remember. I'm not going to remember, right? Let's repent. Let's repent and return to our first love. Love God and love our neighbors. Well, let's read our final verse in our passage this morning and see how Jesus wraps this up. In verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Right? In, in true biblical pattern, right? In invoking God's call to Isaiah, invoking Jesus often in his teachings, right? Jesus calls to them. He says, he who has an ear to hear, hear and respond, right? To the ones that overcome, the ones that hear and respond and overcome, that's what conqueror is, is getting at. It's the ones that are successful in the faith, that overcome, that persevere, that endure. Right? The ones that overcome their fallenness through repentance and return to their love for him and each other, those will be assured of being with Jesus in paradise, in eternity, eating from the tree of life. Salvation will be theirs. They endure to the end. They will be returned from the teetering edge of losing their faith because they lost their love. Jesus calls them to repent, to hear, and return. Hearing the call to repentance and responding by returning to our first love is the path to faith that finishes well. That's what Jesus calls them to. It leads to salvation. While continuing down the path of hard work, sound teaching, 
but void of love, path to destruction. But Jesus calls them back to, your lampstand will be taken from you if you continue down that path. May we be a people who have ears to hear, who overcome our cold hearts, who rekindle the fire where it needs to be, that have faith that finishes well. As we continue through these letters, there's going to be more to hear. Let our hearts, let our ears be open. Let our hearts stay on fire for the Lord. Let love be a hallmark. And so as, as, as we wrap up this morning, I want us to consider, if I haven't made the argument, consider it again. <laughs> the church in Ephesus, its story is not unique. It can easily be our story too. My story, your story. As we follow God longer and longer, if you haven't experienced this, you will. You'll get tempted. You'll get caught in the patterns of the rhythms of serving him and doing the right motions, appearing to be full of faith, right? Showing up in the right places and doing the things that you've always done because you've always done them, and that's what a faithful person does. When in reality, you've lost your love. We can confuse uh, what we do for God for a love for God, right? That's what I'm getting at, and that's what they had done. If our love for the Lord and our love for others is lacking, our works mean nothing. They're empty. They're hollow. They produce nothing. Jesus calls us to a faith that is full of love and our works and deeds that flow out of that. Love God and love your neighbor and let the deeds flow from that. Jesus wants more than just our deeds, our dedication, our dependability. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. He cares more about how we treat one another when we disagree than who's right, right? Especially on matters of doctrine, by the way. Um, how you treat those you disagree with matters. The Ephesian believers, they love truth more than they loved God or one another. And it doesn't mean that they weren't believers, that they didn't have faith, that they weren't saved. No, Jesus is calling them back to a true faith, a deeper faith, a faith that endures, a faith that loves God and loves their neighbor. Jesus calls them back to love as primary rather than love of truth as primary. So it is with us. Let us examine our own hearts and make sure loving God and loving our neighbor is foremost ahead of right doctrine, ahead of strong attendance numbers, right? ahead of your quiet time consistency, and, and, and ahead of how many people you shared the gospel with this week. Right? All those things are beautiful and important, but they are an outflow of your love of God. So love God first and foremost. Because faithful works Consistent works without love is really just faithlessness. And it's a dead faith. Will you pray with me?